0: This episode is brought to you by CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's
1: why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality so you can be sure. With upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. CarMax. The way car buying should be. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. This episode is brought to you by Captain Morgan Sliced. Since the dawn of bread, people have known the truth. Sliced is better. That's why new Captain Morgan Sliced went all in on four bold, deliciously sliced cocktail-style flavors. Pineapple daiquiri, strawberry margarita, mango mai tai, and passion fruit hurricane. Visit captainmorgan.com to find Sliced near you. Does not contain real fruit or juice. Captain Morgan Co., Plainfield, Illinois. Please drink responsibly. 21 plus only.
0: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson and this is episode 72 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with big name interviews every Monday, just like this one, and short four or five minute daily episodes released Tuesday through Sunday on a show I call This Day Rocks. Now, today's guest needs little introduction, another Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. He's our 17th in just 72 shows, which is pretty impressive. Works out about one in four episodes or so, doesn't it? Anyway, consistently voted in the higher echelons of the greatest drummers of all time. He was part of a three-piece that were labelled the biggest band in the world in the early 80s due to phenomenal success. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Mr. Stuart Copeland from The Police. Quickly, though, while you're listening to this, please search for Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts and hit subscribe because, as I said, I release a new episode every single day, so the best way to get all that classic rock content is to subscribe for free, may I add, always free, to Vintage Rock Pod. Subscribe, follow, whatever the terminology is on your chosen podcast app. Just make sure that Vintage Rock Pod is in your list so you don't miss anything. And so you can explore all the other big-name interviews as well that I've had on the show over the last two years as well. It's the best way to access it all. And as I said, of course, it's always free. But back to today's wonderful guest then, Stuart Copeland. As I said, he's widely regarded as one of the greatest drummers of all time. Rolling Stone magazine ranked him 10th, Drumio said 10th as well, Music Radar had him 8th and YouDiscoverMusic.com had him a 7th, which goes to show the esteem with which he's held. Now, the police were a phenomenon once they finally took off, and we'll get into that as well in the interview. With each of their five studio albums released during their short but meteoric time, Time span going platinum in the UK, US, Canada, and Australia. They never released a poor selling record, and again, something we touch on in the interview, they never tasted commercial disappointment as a band, as each record performed better than the last. They also achieved five number one singles in the UK, six in Ireland. Oh, and if we're talking awards, they've got a couple of them too, namely two Brits, six Grammys, a Juno Award, MTV Video Music Award, and were, of course, inducted in the first year they were eligible into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame back in 2003. So in this interview, we of course talk about the police, the stumbling beginning, how the atmosphere in the group evolved, and the studio dynamic changed as fame increased, going out on top, the reunion almost 30 years later, and what the relationship is like between him and Sting today. Famously, Stuart and Sting had many run-ins, shall we say, during their career. But I also find out about his recent projects too. We know about the police, but this year alone he's just performed at the Taylor Hawkins Tribute Concert at Wembley. Stadium in London, and he gives us an eye-opening look behind what was an emotional but fascinating week for all involved. We talk about his recent project with Chrissy Hynde of The Pretenders about Italian witches, true story, his reimagining of the police hits in the world of opera, and what Sting thinks about it, and about his most recent Grammy Award win, which came a couple of months ago in a highly unexpected category. As you'd expect, Stuart is an open book, he says what he feels, and if you've not seen the YouTube clips from the interview yet, I'll tell you now, he spent the whole interview walking round and round his highly impressive studio. He doesn't stop for a second. So here you go. Please enjoy this chat with Stuart Copeland, where we begin talking about the recent Taylor Hawkins tribute concert. Tell me about the night. I mean, obviously, it was a very emotional night for everybody involved. It was a terrific night of celebration as well. But what was the feel like uh, backstage and and among the performers and the artists and the people that were there that night?
2: Well, it was actually more than a night. It was a whole week uh, that we were all in the same hotel in uh, Hoburn in in, um, London and rehearsing and sound checking at the stadium and generally hanging out. And the whole entire week, Uh, courtesy of the Foo Fighters uh, who had us all gathered there was just an amazing week of, you know, I got to hang out with Roger Taylor, with uh, Chrissy Hine, Paul McCartney, uh, Lars Ulrich is now my new best chuckle buddy of, (laughs) you know, Brothers of the Stick all united. And then come the day, it was six hours of non-stop. I think that is the most powerful uh, event that I've ever seen or participated in because of the unique curation of dave grohl to mix and match you know all you know queen with different singers uh pretenders with you know just different lineups you know bands with different singers singers with different bands um and that made it unique and the emotional point of it all gave it an extra charge so the energy did not let up for six hours the last moments of that long day at wembley stadium were even higher than when it began it just went up 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 and up and the 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 punchline at the end was as everyone has noticed when young shane 16 years old got on the drums up i had already seen it i was there in sound checks sobbing when i mm-hmm. saw that kid up because he's the kid is everywhere he's in every dressing room hanging out with everybody he's like. Taylor he's just all over he's just so everywhere and they well that that kid's a home dinger uh, and then to actually see him deliver on the drum. yes ah it was overwhelming overwhelming um and so it was a heck of a day heck of a week
0: absolutely sounds it. i mean talk to me about taylor as well and your friendship he was a, obviously a big fan of yours and 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 you of him too weren't you
2: yeah you know you, we were chuckle buddies And I was glad that I got to hang out and and befriend some of his other, you know, Roger Taylor. We know each other. We've run into each other. But to spend the week, you know, kind of in the bar every night in rehearsals, trading gags. His son, Justin, is (laughs) no slouch on the drums, too, by the way. Uh, And it was just uh, it was a, a unique experience all the way around. Absolutely.
0: Uh, it's been a busy year for you. I want to touch on um, some of the rock operas that you've been doing this year as well. I mean, recently this summer you performed The Police Deranged with a number of the band's big hits as well. And and The Witch's Seed, a project you worked on in collaboration with Chrissy Heinder, you mentioned just a few moments ago. I mean, tell us about this one. Where did the idea come from? How did you and Chrissy work together on this, that kind of thing?
2: Well, uh, it was an incoming call from Italy. Uh, what I write, you know, to commission an opera where they have this venue there, which is a quarry carved out of the Alps. Wow. Um, and they put on spectacles there, projecting on the quarry walls and so on. And they wanted to do a piece about the witch hunts, medieval witch hunts in the Alps and uh, focusing on uh, three women who were falsely accused um, and uh, to tell their story. And I thought, oh my gosh, okay, let me get this straight. Uh, uh, Three women are falsely accused. They get trialed, then they get uh, tortured, then they put them on the stake and burn them. The end. Okay, I'll do it. Uh, Because it's opera in Italy, which is the dream of every composer, and up in the Alps by the lakes there, you know, to just do opera under those conditions. Okay, I'll write you this this dirge but i thought you know we ought to have a woman's voice in here somewhere this is a story about women and um so i searched around for female librettists. couldn't really come out and then i just had the wild idea why don't i give chrissy a call and she said opera yeah i love i love opera yeah great cool yeah yeah witches love it long as they got flames coming out of their tits you know cool <laughs> this is gonna be a great yeah and they're yeah we and she immediately goes off on this inspired uh journey about these wit, and they milk the shepherd boys i'll let that sink in for a minute (laughs) and so and i said but chrissy this would kind of make them guilty as charged (laughs) and as i'm saying that i'm thinking and and so what's wrong with that and the point and my point is and so i went back to the italian commissioners and said how about if they're guilty uh which kind of took them by surprise but eventually i got around i i I developed kind of a uh with the librettist jonathan moore sir jonathan Mm -hmm. moore uh who wrote the words and between us we came up with this dodge which is that how about we go all kurosawa on it (laughs) all rashomon on it and you see it from different points of view and sometimes you're looking at it from the point of view of the women and they are three women of 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 property and of, of, of substance in the community, which is why they were targeted for their, for their stuff. Uh, they would paint them as witches, burn them at the stake, and take their stuff. Uh, and so we see that point of view, and they're just women in the community. But then we go, we switch to the point of view of the inquisitor, and they are witches with all of the aforementioned witcheriness, uh, which is much more fun, by the way.
0: Yeah, 100%. (laughs) (laughs)
2: And since there are witches, we could get zombies in there and vampires, and it just completely, when the lighting and the music change to the dark side, it's a whole new (laughs) world. And then it goes back, so it kind of goes back and forth in
0: perspective. Fantastic. And so what was it like actually performing this then, as you said, in Italy, and in, in the home of the opera world and everything like that?
2: Oh, yeah, doing opera with Italians, even though it, the opera was in English mm-hmm. and some of their pronunciation of the English words <laughs> was uh, comedic. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, because, you know, they're cast for their voice, not for their command of the English language. Yep.
0: Absolutely. And so how much fun is it being on stage then with an orchestra, with a stage full of people, as opposed to what you did for decades with with just the three of you?
2: Yeah, this show is, um, you know, big police songs that I have deranged that I have it's uh, kind of unraveled, de- de- deconstructed yes. and reassembled uh, as orchestral pieces. But uh, rather than the police songs being reduced to wimpy symphony, I am whipping the symphony up into <laughs> raging rock band. And it's a very powerful show because an orchestra is really a mighty instrument yes, of of great course.
0: power. Oh, yeah,
2: And um, so I turned, you know, I played the show across uh, America um, and also just got back from Europe. But I turned the mighty Atlanta Symphony, the Nashville Symphony, the Seattle Symphony, the Cleveland or Chicago, I turned that for the night. They are a raging rock band. Yep. Um, and I, in my years as a film composer, I was obliged, I was forced to learn how to use orchestra and how to make an orchestra sound like this and sound like that because the orchestra has a huge vocabulary. And so I was able to use what I learned under the gun, under cruel employ (laughs) and apply it to rock songs. And uh, it's a very successful show. It's people, it it gets people dancing and the orchestra. The orcs love it because usually when they play their serious music, what they're really on the planet for your Mahler and your Brahms (laughs) and stuff, you know, people kind of listen quietly. But a rock show is a, is a lot of fun.
0: And how much fun was it interpreting the music then? I mean, taking it from being a rock band to an orchestra. And what did Sting and Andy think of, of, of what you did with the tracks? I
2: uh, haven't heard too much from Andy, but Sting's all over it. He loves it. Oh, brilliant. Uh, I send him a huge um, bound, hardback bound score of the giant thing with an enormous tome. <laughs> uh, he, he likes that kind of thing. Uh, he loves it when people does his songs. Um, Makes him feel like what he really feels about himself is that he's a poet and a songwriter. And they, of course, he can play bass and he can sing a bit, but he, he feels his <laughs> lasting legacy is his compositions. You know, back in the day, we had our differences, um, but I was just banging stuff at the back of the stage. I didn't know what he was singing about. I could care less. I was mostly hooked on the guitar riffs and the bass lines. While, you know, thank God we got a singer singing something so that we can sell some records. That was pretty much the extent <laughs> of my uh, conception of what it was all about. So now when I'm getting into these songs, I realized that dang it, old Stingo is a heck of a songwriter, clever little songwriter, and realized <laughs> that, of course, the man is a genius. Um, and this whole orchestra thing is my revenge.
0: <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. And before we, we speak about the police, I mean, again, as I said earlier, it's been a busy year for you and you've won another Grammy. Is that seven now in total? I think I was trying to count them up. Uh, best new age album. Tell us about yes,
2: that. Yes. Go figure. There's a dream realized. Yes. a box-ticked drummer. <laughs> Actually, technically, you know, I am a punk rock drummer because the police started out uh as a okay, fake punk band, but still <laughs> a punk band. And so punk rock drummer wins new age grammy how do you like that
0: love it tell us about the album that you worked on with ricky cage then
2: well he is a musician out of bangalore india uh with a wide net of talents and players and singers and so on and he was assembling he had he's a composer as well and he had assembled these melodies and these performances and just needed a rhythmic glue to attach it all together so he sent them to me and said just here are these this cool material do what you do (laughs) so i mic'd up my timpani and my crotales and my xylophone and uh my glockenspiel and um recorded all this stuff and uh we 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 sent the tracks back and forth between los angeles and bangalore and um made an album which i think is darn beautiful to me it's got a little more punch to it than you would expect you know you know, mm. I think of new age music as something that they play when you get a massage. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this has a little more punch than that. And I think the the, the hard part was to qualify as new age, because once we are in the new age, a very small pond, then uh, at that point, it's a it's a popularity contest because all the voters of the of the uh, of the Academy, they haven't listened to any new age albums and <laughs> uh, hey, that's Stuart Copeland, I like him, let's vote for him. So getting nominated was was the challenge. That
0: was the hard part, but it worked. That was the main thing. Um, And so you mentioned there you you were a punk rocker, as you said, and uh, you came up with a manifesto in the very early days, didn't you? Can you remember that manifesto, what was on that list?
2: Oh, yes, we we can enjoy a laugh together. (laughs) Uh, I think something along the lines of, we don't care about money or fame or glory, we just want to
0: play our... I can't go on. <laughs> Fantastic. And you came up with a name for the band, didn't you? The police. I mean, where did that come from?
2: Well, I mean, um, it was a day, uh, an era of hostile band names. And I saw it written on the side of a car and thought, well, at least that's got name recognition. <laughs> uh, turns out to be a really crap name because for simple reason, I can't, uh, unlike Metallica or Beatles, uh, I can't copyrighted uh, and if you google police you get the minneapolis police department and uh, we don't own the word uh so i screwed up there
0: and so given the incredible success of the band i mean we can throw around figures here 50 million 100 million records sold whatever it is five studio albums every single one of those going platinum both sides of the atlantic all massive but it wasn't instant success was it i mean you originally released uh, fallout in 1977 roxanne can't stand losing you. And so lonely, all in 1978. None of these really broke the charts, though, did they? So at uh, this period, oh, but this you kind know, of it this... did
2: break the charts. As those records were failing, was Clark Kent broke the charts?
0: Yes, your, your alias.
2: alias. Uh, my solo recordings that I played all the guitar, bass, drums, and even sang, which just gives you an idea of how fickle is the finger of fate. Um, <laughs> And with all those songs, which we all know how great those songs are, and I, I will confess, I will state freely that that Clark Kent song that did get picked up by Radio (laughs) One and radio stations around the country and did get into the charts, did get us on top of the pops, was there was no "Every Breath You Take." That was it was no, it was called "Don't Care" because I am the neatest thing around. But (laughs) it, it it got lucky, it won the lottery, and we, you know, like the first time the three blonde heads. Um, we're on TV. Was Top of the Pops as Clark Kent's pretend backing band because Clark Kent <laughs> didn't have a backing band. It was a one man thing. I went into the studio by myself, but I hated to be on a stage like a singer with no band. Mm-hmm. So I got my buddies up there, and we all. The first time we were on TV was on Top of the Pops doing Clark Kent.
0: And Top of the Pops is a, a huge thing over here. It's hallowed in the UK. I mean, what what was your memories of that first appearance on on that show then?
2: Well, we showed up all wearing masks, because the mask reveals the true identity. And um, I had a secret identity. Nobody knew who Clark Kent was. And since they didn't know who it was, they assumed that it was somebody, which it wasn't. Uh, the police <laughs> were nothing. Uh, in fact, less than nothing, because we were, spo- we were known by the critics as a fake punk band, carpetbaggers, um, and somewhat scorned, And which is why I did the secret identity thing. And so people assumed that oh it must be Frank Zappa David Bowie you know uh, John Lennon or something you know uh, which it wasn't it was just little <laughs> old no it was a, just a little old nobody uh, but it was a good story a good and start, so we too. went to the BBC all in masks including our manager my brother Miles yep. and uh, had you know they, they, it was a kerfuffle the whole day but uh, actually kind of fun.
0: Good stuff indeed. Now, in terms of, of the those first tracks that we talked about there, the, the, the police re- uh, released and they weren't hits themselves. I mean, that kind of 12 months. Well, they were hits second time round. Second time round. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about this 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 period of time, though. I mean, it could be very easy for a band to, despite the fact that, you know, they're great songs and and they obviously went on to become legendary, as we said. But at that point, what kept driving you on? Because that was, what, a year, 18 months of putting out these great songs and just not getting traction. So what was it that kept kept you going?
2: I have no idea. Recently, I had a reason to open up my diaries, which I have of that whole period. Uh, the daily diaries and the daily oh, grind, you know, because I'd been with Curved Air. Yes. At the dregs, the end of their career, I was the last rat to jump aboard the sinking <laughs> ship. Um, but we had a crew, we had salaries, we had, you know, biggish audiences. And, you know, it was. It was going. That was a dawdle. That was really good fun. The police was hard slogged from day one. Mm -hmm. We worked and slogged and worked and slogged. You know, my diary's full of picked up the gear at Andy's place, drove it over to Sting, from there to rehearsal, from there to the, you know, to pick up more gear, from there to the somewhere else. I had a curry. Every curry dinner is logged, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) strangely. Um, But it was really, really hard work um 77 78 when uh, andy joined 78 was when it took off excuse me in fact my diaries kind of end when we went off to the states because the rocket ship took off and i didn't i got a movie camera instead of a diary (laughs) um and uh it was really hard work even when things started to take off it just got more intense and we worked harder and played more shows and traveled longer distances then stayed up later and and you know, promo shows, travel just consumed our lives.
0: Crazy stuff. I mean, in terms of the, the songwriting process, then within the band, I mean, Sting obviously wrote the majority of tracks, but you all contributed, of course. I mean, what were the what were the early days in the studio like compared to the later days in the eighties? And
1: uh,
2: well, we were more codependent in the early days. In the early days, Sting would uh, be, you know, he'd be uh, thrilled that we would take an interest in his songs and he would apply diplomacy to get us to work on his songs. And we started out with all songs that I wrote, which were crap. I will once again freely admit, and they were not real songs from my heart. They were just Mac- Machiavellian constructions to fit the punk mold so that we could play in the punk scene uh, and sell records to punks, which was actually a profitable inter- enterprise. Um, but that it wasn't really material. But, one, but when Andy Summers joined, and he had that harmonic uh, sophistication, then that not even Sting knew he could write those songs. None of us knew that. So what kept us together, who knows, why Andy joined these two fake punks when he hadn't even heard any Sting songs yet. And Sting hadn't heard them either, by the way. None (laughs) of us had any idea he could do that. Um, And as he did, he became more confident and less codependent and more certain of his uh singular um vision of the music and which i wouldn't dispute that he's really good at music a really good arranger even arranging drums he's not wrong but it's just kind of no fun to just have to argue over every bit of input <laughs> and so that's where the conflict was it wasn't over you know ego things it was just having us having a participation in the creative enterprise, and that became very very difficult. Um, but we still appreciated those songs. And yeah. going into you know the latter period of the recording, we all showed up with material, and and in that case, it was you know we we all had things to say. I later went on to write operas and film scores, et cetera, et, et cetera. Sad. But within the, the the police sound and what was working for the police wasn't my operatic. You know Stravinsky's sensibilities. It was Sting's songwriting. That's what was holding, you know, making it all happen. So we focused on those, and Andy and I would write songs just so that we would show up in the studio with material, and Sting wouldn't feel that he was the only person doing homework. <laughs> but when we got into the studio, we, uh, hey Sting, uh, you got another one there for us? Uh, yes, he does. <laughs> Message in a bottle. Hey, let's do that. <laughs> and so we pretty much latched onto Sting's song and. Interestingly, in hindsight, those last two records—in fact, the last two and a half records—were the the drums were recorded about twenty minutes after hearing the track for the first time.
0: Wow!
2: You know, he would he would only reveal them one by one, Um, and we would leap upon them like like uh, piranhas. And while he's showing Andy the chords, I'm kind of listening in, and okay, okay fine fine i think i know it can do and let's do a take and i'd go up to the dining room where the drums were and we'd record one take another take maybe a third usually the second take would be it and whatever i came up with that morning is on the record for the rest of eternity
0: (laughs) phenomenal stuff
2: and by the way they got to do They got to redo the bass, redo the scratch (laughs) vocals, redo all the guitars. They'd spend the next two months having a great time finessing their roles. But the drums, that's what you get.
0: <laughs> it stayed the same um, you, mess- you mentioned uh, message in the bottle there that was uh, a huge it went to number one the band's first number one here in the UK uh, first of I think it was five number one singles here in the UK incredible stuff and the career trajectory from that point on I think it was 1979 between then and, and 1983 the, the every album got bigger and, and bigger and sold more and more copies and then you got labelled as the biggest band in the world at one point and the Synchronicity album and eight times platinum in the US and the tour as well playing to 40000 people a night, 50,000 people a night, 60,000 people a night. I mean, what was that tour like? What was the state of the band at that point? Was there a great deal of pressure with that label of being the biggest band in the world sort of thing? Well, by the
2: time of synchronicity, the vertigo had worn off a little bit. It was no longer so unsettling to be in a different status as a human being than mere mortals. Mm -hmm. And I still wake up in the morning, put my trousers on one leg at a time like everybody else. But you're in this exalted state where people look at you funny. Uh, You're (laughs) not really you. You're an avatar, okay? There's a little guy in here who still has to take a piss. But the avatar is this larger-than-life figure who overshadows all of life um, and makes people look at you funny. Um, But we were kind of used to it by then. But we also were very frustrated by the artistic logjam um sting was frustrated that he had to compromise and andy and i were frustrated that sting would not compromise um (laughs) it was just made it creatively a a dead space Uh, i love sting's material i still am susceptible uh you know his tune his melodic sensibility still sent chills up my spine but it's i'm not a session guy i just don't do that i'm not very good at it i'm not very good at taking instruction and it's not why i'm here on the planet So we all felt the constraints of the golden cage, and we were very (laughs) happy in a moment of comedy um, to decide, you know what, let's get out of here. Let's burn down. And the only way we could get out of here was to burn down, to melt down the golden cage, then kill it dead so that there wouldn't be this constant pressure to come on, boys, get back into it and to go back into that place, which with the best of intentions drove us all nuts. You know, we ended up screaming at each other when we had so much in common, when we had so much camaraderie, such great love for what we brought into each other's lives to go back into that environment where we're screaming at each other Mm -hmm. just made us say, let's melt down the golden cage and be free. As Stingo said on his next album, his very next single was if you love somebody set them free.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> absolutely yeah it's quite an unusual thing for, for for any band or any anyone in the musical spotlight or any celebrity to go out on the top because as i said every album you'd, you'd released up to that point had got bigger and bigger and bigger and you, you went out really on the top and that is that is unique in a way isn't it
2: well lucky for us so when we uh got over ourselves uh <laughs> 30 years later and uh had had our fun you know, I'd uh, had a you know my career as a film composer and opera composer and what have you, and Sting had won twenty more Grammys on his own. And uh, <laughs> hey, let's give it a try. And since it was pristine, since it was unbesmirched by any known failure or decline, yeah. we never saw the other side of the parabola. When we reconvened, the attention was stupendous and it overwhelmed us yeah. and even though when we went to rehearse the the reunion tour we were at each other's throats right away uh <laughs> and
0: like the good old days never had
2: to put up with a drummer making all that racket are, are you kidding i got world i'm trying to sing these songs and they got world war three over my left shoulder and i who had quite become accustomed to being world war three on the drums, because that's why people buy tickets to my shows as they had been doing for 30 years by that time to have my bass player come over and tell me something anything. are you kidding? Fuck off back to your, get back on the mic. And so with great love in our hearts, we were at each other's throats once more. But however, when we got in front of the audiences, once he made it through the rehearsals and by the way, at the end of every day's rehearsal, we'd, you know, Sting and Andy would get into the wine, I'd get into the tequila, and we'd be laughing and singing and dancing together yes. uh, in each other's arms. It just, we were, you know, fortunately, we have a very short attention span for anger, <laughs> and it would only last as long as we were trying to make music together. You know, as soon as we're having <laughs> a wonderful dinner at Sting's Chateau, uh, it was all fine again. But it was really the audience. When we came out on stage in front of 80,000 people a night, That's when we realize that there's a reason why fate threw us three disparate individuals together.
0: And how do you feel when, when something like that happens? Because... There was decades, wasn't there, between that that and the reunion tour from from the, the height of the fame? And and you as you said, you come back and it is huge audiences and the 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 desire to get tickets, the ticket sales were insane and and the clamor around it all. I mean, how does that make you feel when you realize that despite all that time that's passed, that the music still is overwhelming to the point where people just are desperate to see you? Uh,
2: emotionally very powerful. When we would look down into the front rows and we would see those same hot chicks, from 30 years ago who are now mothers, uh, who are with their husbands (laughs) and they're remembering those days. And they were, if anything more beautiful than when they were hot, hot babe chicks, you know. Somehow the audience grew up and the memories that they had of those songs Made us feel very emotional.
0: Fantastic. And obviously, you've mentioned there that the, the, the turmoil within the band at times. I mean, what, what's it like between yourselves now, the, the three of you? Are you able to pick up the phone and, and have a blether, as we'd say in Scotland, or a conversation at times?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we send each other dumb memes from the internet. And, uh, you know, occasionally there's, there's business to discuss an album release or re release or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, we're in touch. Uh, We all understand why we fought and we don't need to go there. Uh, You know, music has a different, we are not birds of a feather, even though we shared so much life experience together. Um, Music has a different function in each of our lives. You know, uh, not just what music to make and how to make it, but why to make it in the first place and what music is for. In fact, I did a documentary for the BBC about what is music? What's it for, evolutionarily speaking? Why do human beings do music and respond to it so profoundly? Why did I make a living um, putting music to storytelling? Um, and what's it all about? And for each of us, it's a completely different answer. For me, it's a, you know, when I play music, when I'm banging stuff, it's a celebration. Let's burn down the building and have a laugh while we're at it for Stingo it is a place of refuge a place of beauty that he can go and harness his feelings and his thoughts into just beautiful lyric poetry and beautiful music and it's a enchanted garden that he can escape from the hurly-burly world into this beautiful magical place and the last thing that will enhance the serenity of this divine atmosphere is me banging shit
0: <laughs> wonderful stuff wonderful it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you Stuart and wish you the best of luck with everything that's going on you're always so busy so it's always interesting to see what you've got coming up next and uh, uh, best of luck and hopefully catch you again soon thank you very much for listening take care there the brilliant Stuart Copeland there. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, if you get chance, jump over to the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel. Again, hit subscribe, please. And watch some of the interview with Stuart on there, and you'll be able to see him in his studio too. Right, regular listeners to the show will now know that it's time for my top five favourite songs. And this week, of course, it'll be my favourite five songs from The Police. As usual, plenty to choose from, but let's start with your reaction to last week's top five Pat Travers songs. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode with Pat yet then give it a spin. It's a great one. My list was topped by Snortin' Whiskey, Making Magic was two, three was Life in London, four was Boom Boom, Out Go the Lights, and five was Stop and Smile. As expected, a lot of love for Boom Boom. Raymond Barrett among those saying that should have been number one. Although Grant Hamilton agreed with me on Snortin' Whiskey at number one, but with Boom Boom, should be at number two. Bob Ravenscraft is a big fan of those two songs as well. Big radio hits, he said. Dale Basham said Put It Straight should have been somewhere on that list, whereas big Pat Travers fan Mary Mariano simply said she loves them all, which is fair enough. Big thanks to everyone who reached out this week on that. But on to this week's top five then, and of course it's The Police. Remember this is my personal choice, highly subjective, not meant to be the definitive list, but as always I'd love to hear how your lists differ as well. But here we go, the top five songs from The Police according to The Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a song that appears on their last album, Synchronicity. It's a great, upbeat tempo track, which is odd, as it's about a miserable man. The fact that it kind of mentions the Loch Ness Monster has no part to play in my selection, honest. At number five is Synchronicity 2. 4 is a track from their debut album not one of their big known tunes but one I've always liked for its more kind of punk sensibilities it races along at top speed with a catchy as hell hook in the chorus and number 4 is Truth Hits Everybody At three is the opening track on their fourth album, Ghost in the Machine. Sting himself said he wrote this on a Casio keyboard, the first time he'd ever played a keyboard. It has a great bassline to it as well. At three is Spirits in the Material World. Number two is the group's first UK number one single, the opening track on their second album, Regatta de Blanc. Built around a really catchy guitar riff with the title refrain repeated 31 times, it's become one of the group's biggest songs. And number two is Message in a Bottle. And at number one is probably their most famous song, but it is for a reason, a driving rhythm and pulsating chorus and a subject matter that's slightly unusual for a hit song, falling in love with a prostitute. From their debut album, the number one song from the police according to Vintage Rock Pot, is, of course, Roxanne! Roxanne! There you go, my top five songs from The Police. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me vintagerockpod at gmail.com or find me on the social media channels. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all the usual sites, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that sort of thing, and you'll find me on there. Come say hello and let me know your selections, and you too will get a mention on next Monday's big interview show, which, by the way, is another cracker with a man, part of two huge bands in the 70s, and then became one of the leading music video makers of the 80s, working with some of the biggest acts of the time, so you've got to look out for that As I said earlier as well though, please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app of choice, hit subscribe on Vintage Rock Pod so you don't miss any future releases, including the daily episodes This Day Rocks as well But that is it for this week's big interview show, thanks again for listening I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks But remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock, just tell them my music is better than yours Take care